0: Well, good morning to the Hamilton Church family. Thank you so much for the kind invitation to come and to join you this morning. I'm once again indebted to my friend Alistair for uh, recording this uh, address. Uh, So grateful that you're allowing me to come into your living rooms. And uh, my prayer is that the Lord would really bless us as we spend some time together this morning in the word of God. Well, when I received the phone call to the invitation Joshua, because I happen to love the book of Joshua, but then when I began to read chapter 8 of the book, which is what we're going to look at this morning, I wondered how we could possibly benefit from learning uh, how the Israelites got involved in genocide in Ai and Bethel. It's quite a a struggle to uh, discern in this chapter what it is that God would say to us. But let's take a moment or two just to read uh, some verses from chapter 8, reading from verse 1. And the heading in my Bible is Ai destroyed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you, go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out back Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you must be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee, from them you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will be with, will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded, see to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush, which lay, and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai, with a valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city, and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all the Israelite Israel and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them and they fled towards the desert all the men of Ai were called to pursue them and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel they left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel then the Lord said to Joshua hold out towards Ai, the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites, who had been fleeing towards the desert, had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city, and that the smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them, so that they were caught in the middle, with the Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert, where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai Ai, and killed those who were in it, twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai." For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who had lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. And he hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Well, let's pause and we'll pray just for a moment. Father, we thank you so very much that you have recorded your Word as an expression of all that you want us to know about you. And we have to confess, there are passages that we come across that we struggle to understand, and Lord, this is one of them. And we pray, Father, this morning, that your Holy Spirit would draw near us and give us an understanding of your heart, what it is you want us to know as we look at these difficult verses. So please, Lord, draw close to us. Give us that ability to concentrate that we might learn, and in learning that we might understand, and in understanding that we might worship you. We ask these things, Father, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, when I began to look at this passage, I realized that it wasn't enough simply to retell the story and to perhaps expand on it. And having spent, as I said, some time looking at it, I believe that we discover in this passage that God is very concerned about the purity of His people, And he wants us to understand that his holiness and his glory are more important than anything else. Chapter 8, understandably, follows chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have the tragedy of Achan's sin. One man's sin led to the death of his family and to the death of 36 other Israelite soldiers. So we learn that one man's sin has an impact on the community. If you like, um, one rotten apple in the barrel spreads its rottenness to the other apples. The goodness of the other apples don't counteract the rottenness of the bad apple. Well, chapter 8 follows on from this uh, tragedy. And yet, we find, I have to say, some wonderful encouragement in the first two verses. Look what they say. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you, and go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king, as you did to Jericho and its king, except you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves, set an ambush behind the city. Well, what's very interesting, at least for me, is the fact that when a relationship has come under strain, uh, the restoration, the rebuilding of that relationship is often costly and time consuming. And so, in reality, we wouldn't be uh, at all surprised if Israel felt a little distanced from God following the Achan incident, and if the business of conquest was going to be kept on hold for a period of time because they'd stuffed up, they'd made a big mistake. But nothing could be further from the reality here. As soon as the sin is dealt with, God's anger is removed. And he takes the initiative in coming to Joshua with words of great encouragement and fresh direction. Look look what he says. He says, don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. You see, fear and discouragement can kind of paralyze us, and God didn't want them to be paralyzed. He wanted them to move forward. Well, the detail is clearly recorded, and it's not worth my time or your time for me to go over that uh, in any great detail. We know that uh, 30,000 of the best soldiers were marched under cover of darkness, a journey of uh, maybe about 13 miles, to a position west of the city where they were to lie in wait. And the next day, Joshua marched out with the army to the north of Ai, and a detachment of 5,000 soldiers were sent to guard the flank and also to wait in ambush. And we know what happened. How, how uh, in the morning, the men of Ai came out to fight, and the Israelites retreated, and, and the men of Ai were drawn out after them. And as the Israelites were running away, the men, soldiers, rose up from ambush, went into the city, set it on fire, and then came out and attacked the rear of the Ai, the, the men of Ai, the army from the men of Ai. And then, of course, the main Israelite army turned round. And it was an unholy slaughter. They just killed everybody. How uh, extraordinary that was. And it says in verses 24 and 25, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Israel. Get that, twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Israel, and I think that all includes the children. It's pretty horrible to try and imagine, isn't it? So, what does God want us to learn from this passage? Well, let's step back for a moment and just consider some things that I think are quite important. The first thing we want to notice is this, that the Old Testament is violent. The Old Testament is filled with violence. Do you remember the first king of Israel, King Saul? Well, he lost his throne because he didn't obey God's command to wipe out the Amalekites. And Samuel the prophet came and said to him in 1 Samuel 15:26. Uh, Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And we see what Samuel did, what the Lord's solution to the problem was. In verses 32-33, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women? And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal that's the the prophet, put the king Agag to the sword. And the story of the conquest of the promised land is brutal and very bloody indeed. In the 19th century, many people, many scholars began to reject the Old Testament. They took up the uh, approach of saying, well, God is a God of love, and how could a God of love order men and women and children to be put to death? And that's a question, isn't it? How could God do that? Well, let me just gently say to you that we can't design God as we think He ought to be, Some folks have the idea that God is a kind of a celestial Santa Claus with a big beard who looks benignly uh, at us and smiles and dispenses kindness while ignoring our choices and our sin. But we need to understand that God will not fit into a box because God is too big He won't fit into a box of our own making. So what do we know? What do we know about God? Well, we know that God is just. Genesis 18 says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? So God does right. Psalm 100, the last verse tells, or the first verse tells us that God is good all of the time. Well, why was God's judgment on Canaan not unjust. Well, God had been patient, very patient. 400 years earlier, God had told Abraham that the Jews would be captive in Egypt, but would return after the fourth generation. And his explanation is found in Genesis 15. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, there's something really interesting in that verse, and it's this. He talks about the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God had been amazingly patient. The cup of the Amorites had been filling and filling, and yet God had withheld judgment in his forbearance. But when the cup was full— he came with the Israelites in judgment. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a similar study of divine forbearance, the entire populace practice aggressive homosexuality and all kinds of depravity, as well as murder. And yet, when Abraham pleaded with God to spare Sodom, the dialogue revealed that God was willing to spare the people for the sake of fifty righteous and then 45, and then 40, and then 30, and then 20, and then 10. But not even 10 righteous people could be found in Sodom or Gomorrah. Their cup was full. It was overflowing with wickedness, and they brought on themselves the fire and brimstone of a volcanic eruption. And this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was an early stroke of the holy sword of judgment which came down in a wider area, when the Amorites' cup brimmed over. And we must see the destruction of Ai against the backdrop of God's amazing and extraordinary patience. The Canaanites were absolutely depraved. They offered child sacrifices. Can you imagine taking your firstborn child, male child, and, and, and just tossing a baby into the fire. That's what they did. And not only that, their worship services involved all kinds of sexual perversions. It wasn't hard to get folks to come to church or their equivalent. And when the Israelites didn't obey God by exterminating the Canaanites, the Canaanites influenced the Israelites. There was a transfer of of influence, and it wasn't from God's people to the Canaanites, it was the other way around. They were being drawn away from God. Now we read in Second Kings about a man called Manasseh who was the king of Judah. And it says he sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger how awful was that? And he was the king. And when Josiah became king in 2 Kings 23, we read, he also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord and the quarters where the women did weaving for Asherah. So, what was going on? In the temple of God, there were male shrine prostitutes. This was supposed to be a holy place where God was worshipped. But the influence of the Canaanites had knocked them very far off course. And not only were there male shrine prostitutes, there were women who were weaving for Asherah, and Asherah was a deity that they worshipped. And while Were worshiping these other deities, they were not worshiping God. How dreadfully sad that was. What a tragedy. Israel had become seriously contaminated. And whenever a people's cup becomes full, judgment comes. Do you remember right back in the days of Noah, Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And it goes on to say that God's heart was filled with pain. And what happened? Well, he sent the flood in judgment. He sent the flood in judgment. So for these reasons, the Canaanites' depravity, their ability to pollute Israel, God's incredible patience, and his resolve to punish when the cup is full, we must never fall into the foolishness of supposing that God was unjust in judging the Canaanites. And the more we study This gory eighth chapter of Joshua, the more we understand why it is in the Bible, because it teaches us some essential truths about God. It teaches us that there are some things more important than human life, namely God's holiness and the holiness of God's people. Those things matter more than you and I. God is not like us. His holiness is is more important than we can ever grasp or imagine. We learn that God is a God who judges. Uh, Jim uh, Packer uh, has written about what he calls hot tub religion. A number of years ago, my wife and I were staying with some friends in New Jersey and uh, it was a little bit like today. The snow was falling. I think we had about five or six or seven inches of snow, and our friends had a hot tub. So we went out uh, in the dark and got into this hot tub, and it was just wonderfully warm, and really, it was so cold out of the hot tub that we just had our noses and our eyes and the tops of our head out of the water. It was wonderful. And Packer talks about hot tub religion. Where were comfortable, insulated and isolated from the temperature round about, concerned only with our own comfort, hot tub religion. But that's not what the Bible speaks. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow its precepts have a good understanding. You and I Yes, we are grateful that God loves us, but we also know that we have to fear him. Not fear him as though he has a big stick ready to beat us, but fear to offend him because we love him. And the ruins of Ai were meant to be a a, a visual lesson for Israel. Well, what happened next? what next? Well, God had instructed the Israelites to the go to the valley of Shechem, uh, which lay between two mountains, Mount Ebo uh, on the north and Mount Gerizim on the south. You can read all about it in Deuteronomy 27, and there they built an altar, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. So having won this great victory in in Ai and having been able to accumulate all of the the booty, they they set out in obedience to God, and they made an offering. They worshipped God. The offering was consumed by fire. I think it was the model for what Paul said in Romans 12, when he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And that speaks of, a, of, if you like, total commitment. So what happened next is described, interestingly, in Deuteronomy 27. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land. The Lord your God is giving you a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster, Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them. Build the altar uh, of the Lord your God with the stones from the field and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. Well, this was the first public display of God's law. Its words were no longer the exclusive treasure of God's people. And travelers passing through the land would know they were entering a land where God was worshipped. Well, the law was read to the people. Half of the people were positioned on the slopes of Mount Gerizim to the south, and the other half. were on the slopes of Mount Ebal to the north, and the Ark of the Covenant uh, surrounded by priests was in the valley between them. The large natural amphitheater made it possible for the people to hear every word, and as the curses of the law were read out one by one, the tribes on Mount Ebal responded, Amen. As the blessings were read, the tribes on Mount Gerizim responded, Amen. What did it mean? Well, with all sincerity, Israel affirmed that the law of the Lord was indeed the, to be the law of the land. If you like, God was giving the people a huge object lesson. What happened to them in the land was going to depend, as it were, on whether they were living on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Ebal. The people were to hear from Mount Gerizim the blessings which would come to them if they kept God's law. And on And from Mount Ebal, the curses which would fall on them if they did not keep God's law. What an extraordinary occasion that was. The history of the Jewish people since that time has been determined by their attitude towards the law of God. When they've been obedient, they've experienced blessing. And when they've been disobedient, they've experienced judgment. And what a tragedy that the affirmations of this momentous hour faded so quickly. Well, what are we to take from this extraordinary passage? Well, there are a number of lessons, but I think the most important one for us to learn is this. God is holy, and he judges sin. God is holy, and he judges sin. You see, God hates sin. And if God hates sin, then you and I need to be really careful that we don't become what's sometimes referred to as cafeteria Christians. Do you know what a cafeteria Christian is? A cafeteria Christian is one who approaches the the, the Word of God as one would approach a buffet. I'll have a little bit of that and a little bit of that. I don't like that, so I won't have any of that, and I'll have a little bit of the other, and that's enough. I want to leave the rest. Don't want anything to do with it. Don't like it cafeteria christian picks and chooses from god's word but you know we must read the the bible not just the passages that speak to us of his sacrificial love but we have to also read the other passages that speak of his wrath his anger against sin and if you and i are cafeteria christians and we pick what we like and leave the rest what we are doing is we are imagining God as we would like him to be and ignoring his revelation of himself. Now, understand that it was Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament. He is the God who judged Ai, who commanded the destruction of the city and all of its inhabitants. And yet, this same Jesus is described in Revelation as the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. This same Jesus who destroyed Ai died on the cross for our sins. Understand that the Jesus of the New Testament did not evolve from the God of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't change. We read in Hebrews 13, verse 1, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today. And forever. And our God hates sin and will one day judge the world. And a day is coming when the cup of our country will be full. And on that day, he will come in judgment. And if Joshua chapter 8 tells us anything, it tells us that you and I, we need to take sin seriously. We must not ever sit back and think, I've got my fire insurance sorted out, so now I can sit back like a consumer and go to church and take what I like and leave what I don't like. No. We have to come before God with hearts that are open. We take sin seriously we, we fight it, we flee from it, and we fall down before God, understanding that he is utterly and absolutely holy, and that he hates sin. We have to be so careful that we don't play fast and loose with these things. It's so tempting just to think of God as being warm and fuzzy and loving— And he is loving. But at the same time, he is the God who judges sin. And it is only his patience that that has withheld judgment on our land. Let's personalize this. I I wonder about you today. I I don't know you. I, I don't know whether you have a relationship with God but if you, if you don't, if you've never come to that point of asking Christ to save your soul, you are in danger of a judgment that will one day come because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God who judged sin in the Old Testament, the God whose hatred of sin can be seen in the immense sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross of Calvary... When the sin of the world was poured upon him, and God the Father's hatred of sin was such that in those moments when Jesus was dying on the cross, God the Father moved away from him. How could that be in the Trinity? And yet it happened because Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was utterly alone because God is holy and cannot abide the presence of sin. And oh, my prayer this morning is that while we read this history that we might not just focus on the detail of the story but look at the great truths undergirding it that God is holy and God is concerned for the holiness of his people. And when there is sin in the camp, as there was with Achan. God deals with it. Oh, it has been said that the the mill wheel of God's judgment turns slowly, but it turns inexorably. It really does. So my prayer this morning is that we would look at our hearts, each of us, and pray, God, would you keep us from sin? May he bless us and help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of looking at your word together and what a serious and somber word it is. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us that we might catch a glimpse of these things as you see them, Lord. Forgive us for those times when we have sought to either put you in a box and make you smaller and less significant or when we have sought to imagine you as, a, as the God we would like to design. You are much bigger than that. So please, Father, pour out a rich blessing on the church family in Hamilton, and grant that they might be a community where God is evidently present, that men and women around about might sit up and take note as the folks stream out of the church or out of their homes that these folks have been with Jesus. May it be so, Lord. We ask it, Father, for the honour and glory of your own precious name. Amen.